Let me tell you a story about what happened to me a few days ago. It was the worst morning I've had in a long time. And the best morning I've had in a long time. Right? Kind of sounds like a tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So here's what happened. I'm heading out early in the morning to run a few errands. Now, this is last week, which would have been spring break for me anyway. But of course, in light of all that's going on, even if it hadn't been spring break, I wouldn't have been going into work in person. And I was trying to get the jump on running a couple of errands early in the morning. First, I needed to gas up my car, and conveniently, there is a gas station right outside my little neighborhood. So my plan was I'd gas up my car, and then I'd head out a couple miles to Walmart. Now, I'm kind of a moderate prepper, so, you know, I'm stocked up on a lot of the basics and essentials, much better than most people. But nonetheless, I had my little wish list of things I'd like to get if they were in stock. So anyway, I filled up my car at the filling station, got back in the car, drove to Walmart, which is, you know, only about two miles from my house. I get there, it's probably 7.30, and they're opening at 7 these days. So, you know, it was certainly much more crowded than it would normally be on a weekday at 7.30 a.m., but it wasn't mobbed, and I was actually able to get a fair amount of the stuff on my list. Only a handful of things were out of stock that I wanted to get, or was interested in getting, if, you know, opportunistically if they had them. And I had a decent cart full of stuff, you know, a bit over 100 bucks worth of stuff. And I go and I hit the self-checkout, and I scan all my stuff, and I go to pay, and realize my wallet isn't in my pocket, nor is it in any of my pockets. Now, naturally, I start to not feel so good. I ask the lady who's, you know, overseeing the self-checkout area if she can hold my order. I think I left my wallet in my car. She says, fine, no problem. Sets my card aside and, you know, prints up a little receipt with my total. I run out to the car and ransack it and find no wallet. Now I'm starting to feel a little bit worse. I come back into the store, tell the lady, I still can't find my wallet. She says, well, we can hold your cart and your order for up to an hour. If you want to go look around the store, check your car again, all that stuff. Now I'm starting to feel a little bit closer to panicky at this point. I literally jog around the store, the route that I had gone shopping, just to see if somehow it had come out of my pocket which seems unlikely given the type of shorts I was wearing. You know, these are 5'11 cargo shorts. It's not easy for things to come spilling out of your pockets with those kind of shorts. So I literally jog around the store, bobbing and weaving around people in various states of hysteria and panic buying, looking around for my wallet and don't see it. Then I run back out to my car and ransack it a second time, top to bottom, using a flashlight to look under the seats really carefully and everything like that, no wallet. At this point, I'm racking my brain trying to think, how the hell did my wallet and I part company? And I think back, like you should when you lose something, to, well, when's the last time and place you definitely know that you had it? And I said, well, I got gas this morning, so I damn sure had it then because I used my card. And then my brain puts it together. Oh shit, you idiot. When you were filling up your car with gas, at some point, either right after you swiped the card, or perhaps as you were putting the gas cap back on, you dumb shit, you set your wallet down on the roof of the car, didn't you? And your dumb ass drove off. 
and most likely your wallet is gone. And let me just say that my wallet, aside from all the usual stuff in it that you don't want to lose, right? Your driver's license, multiple credit and debit cards, variety of other important, you know, cards and things, my membership card to my local shooting range, my concealed weapons permit, like all this stuff, right, that I'm now going to have to deal with being gone forever. And aside from that, I had an abnormally large amount of cash, more cash than I typically just carry around in my wallet day to day. I had over $300 cash in that thing. And that was actually the cash I was going to use to buy groceries at Walmart. So I drive frantically back to the gas station outside my neighborhood and I scour the parking lot looking for my wallet. I don't see it anywhere. I go in and ask the guy working the counter if by some miracle, some good Samaritan had found my wallet and brought it in to him. He said no, and then I gave him my name and number and said, hey, just in case, you know. Then I go back out, jump in the car, and drive back to Walmart, looking along the way, because of course I'm thinking, you know, who knows at what point the wallet would have come off the roof of my car. It might have come off immediately when I started driving in the parking lot of the gas station. Or potentially, it might have stayed on there somehow and only flew off somewhere along the couple of miles between that gas station and Walmart. And so I'm driving and simultaneously trying to look at the street and at the shoulder of the road and everything as closely as I can while, you know, driving at a reasonable speed so I don't get rear-ended. And I make it all the way back to Walmart not having seen anything that even looked like my wallet. At this point in time, I'm pretty much resigned to the fact that my wallet and everything in it was picked up by somebody shortly after I left or found along the side of the road by somebody, and I'll never see it again. And on top of all this crazy tiot walkie crap happening around us, now I've also got to deal with losing over $300 cash plus all the other cards and contents and ID and so forth. But I decide there's one last chance before I give up and start, you know, calling the credit card companies and getting the ball rolling on all that crap. Maybe I missed my wallet along the side of the road somewhere just because I was busy driving and, you know, going 40 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour, whatever. So I decide my one last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ride my bike from my house up to Walmart because then I'll be able to see a lot better and really kind of take my time really kind of searching. So that's what I do. I get back home. I jump on my bike. I start riding. I had just made it out of my little neighborhood, just a little ways past where that gas station is. We're talking, you know, only a quarter mile from my house, when all of a sudden my cell phone rings. I stop my bike, pull the cell phone out. It's a weird 800 number. Now, normally, when my phone rings and it's a weird 800 number, I'm not answering it. And unless it's someone who leaves a message and it is something that I want to get back to, I typically will just block that number. But the little bit of hope left in my mind said it might be something related to the wallet. Maybe someone found it and it actually is doing the honorable thing. And maybe they called, I don't know, the credit card company number from one of my cards or something like this. Maybe it's my wallet. And so I answer it. It's AAA, a lady who sounds like a New Zealander who works at AAA tells me that she just got a call from someone who found my wallet and wants to return it. She gives me a name and number. 
I thank her, hang up, immediately call that number. It's a guy I could tell by his voice, an older guy, named Tony. He lives maybe a mile and a half from my house, in the same section of town. He went to that gas station, apparently right after I was there. Found my wallet. He actually looked at the address on my driver's license and tried to bring it to my house to give to me. But of course, I wasn't there because I was at Walmart at that time. And so he had gone through my wallet to try and find something that he could call to get in touch with me. And the first thing he saw was my AAA card. So Tony tells me his address, says he's there right now if I want to come pick up my wallet. I say, yes, absolutely. Jump in my car, drive over there. It takes, you know, two minutes. And I meet Tony and his wife, Patricia. I'm not good at this sort of thing. If I had to guesstimate, I'd say Tony's maybe 75 years old, Patricia a bit younger than that. And they were super friendly and pleasant. I'm practically in tears, thanking them profusely. They give me my wallet back. Every single dollar is in there. Nothing has been disturbed. And he was almost apologetic. He's like, I'm sorry I had to kind of go through it a little bit because I needed to find some way to get in touch with you. I'm like, I completely understand. Don't worry about it one bit. And so I had a hell of an emotional roller coaster that morning from like complete panic and depths of despair. And believe me, I was kicking myself like, you idiot, how stupid could you be? Because I've never done anything like that before in my whole entire adult life. It's probably the first time in my entire life I've set my wallet down on the roof of my car at a gas station. I can't think of ever having done it again, certainly never to the point where I drove off with it on the roof. But, you know, how thankful was I that the first person who happened to come across my wallet lying there in the gas station parking lot was a good, honest man who did the right thing. And I tell you that story because, like many of you, I've been on an up and down emotional roller coaster in various ways over the past week or two. And that was one thing that put me on more of an upward trajectory. Because I know I'm the type of person that if I found a wallet, I would do everything I possibly could to get it back to its rightful owner and I wouldn't take a dollar out of it. And hopefully you listening to this, you're that type of person too. But of course, how many people out there walking around wouldn't do that? I mean, best case scenario, maybe take all the cash and then hand it into lost and found at the gas station. Maybe not even do that. Maybe go see how much joyriding they could do on my credit cards before I called the company to stop it. But instead, I was so lucky that the person who found it was a good, honest person. And so it was one of those things that really, you know, began in a terrible, terrible state of mind and ended where I was practically crying with gratitude. So yeah, even in these crazy times, there are good people out there. And I'm doing my best whenever I'm out and about in the world to try and be one of them in whatever way I can. Because people are on edge. And a lot of people are scared. And so even little things, like really trying to be pleasant to people and put on a positive demeanor. And I urge you to do the same thing, and I urge you, you know, in any situation you can, to try and do something to help your fellow people around you feel a little bit better.
Hey everybody, CJ here, looking about at the end of the world as we know it, or Teotihuacan. I hope you didn't mind my little anecdote to start this episode off with. It's just something that happened to me last week that really made an impact on me, and I thought I would share it with you, and hopefully it gives some of you some of the positive feeling it gave me, and a little bit of encouragement that, hey, even in dark times, there's still good people who will do the right thing. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, I ordered as a thank you gift, they should be getting it next week, I ordered Tony and his wife Patricia a nice thank you basket with some good food in it from Harry and David. So, and I didn't tell them I was going to be doing that. So that they should be getting that as a surprise next week. When I went to order it, Harry and David apparently are backed up. I guess a lot of people are sending those sorts of things as gifts right now. I considered just, you know, dropping off a giant thing of toilet paper for them, but I decided that would be a little bit tacky, even though it somehow seems appropriate in this bizarre situation we find ourselves. But yeah, they'll be getting a nice little gift from me next week. I hope they enjoy it. Trying to pay it forward in a little humble way. So let's get into what this episode is all about. Many of you are on lockdown or quarantine or even kind of just partial informal quarantine. Your work is on pause or is doing everything remotely, as mine is, by the way. We're doing the rest of the semester, which is maybe about five weeks, is going to be online. And I'll actually be pretty busy for the next couple of weeks with day job related stuff because I have to set up online versions of classes that I don't normally teach online to finish off the semester. So I'm going to be a little bit extra busy, even though on the plus side, I don't have to do my commute, which is 45 minutes each way every day. But until I get those online classes mostly slapped together, I'll be a little bit distracted with that. But I am doing my best to still put out some DHP stuff over the next few weeks, despite that. And then, of course, once I get beyond that point, once my online classes are all set up and running, I'll be able to really put some time and energy into the DHP because really, I don't have to go back into work until the middle of August at the earliest because we're finishing off this current semester with all online. And then I have summer break and I don't teach summer school anymore. So basically, I don't have to go back into work physically for about five months. So just think how many hours I can spend destroying Woodrow Wilson. But in the meantime, I thought I'd put together some things that didn't require a huge amount of research while I'm sort of busy and distracted doing all that work on my online classes. And one of the ideas I had for some DHP stuff like that is I realized that in many ways, this situation in which many of us find ourselves, if you're working from home now, or, you know, heaven forbid if you've been laid off, but I know statistically that's happened to a lot of people already and certainly will probably happen to more, unfortunately. But if you find yourself spending more time at home than normal, there are pluses to that too. And I'm certainly doing my best to make the most lemonades out of these lemons as I can. I'm trying to still do as much exercising from home and running and stuff like that as I can. You know, martial arts is closed for now. The gym is closed for now. But I'm trying to do my best to still exercise a lot on my own. And I'm trying to, as much as I can, take advantage of it to learn some new things, work on some projects, etc. And in some ways, this Teotihuacan scenario, which we find ourselves kind of reminds me of that classic Twilight Zone episode, Time Enough to Read. Only hopefully it won't have the same sad, ironic ending. So yeah, I would urge you to use any time you have off to work on whatever you can work on in terms of personal development, self-improvement, to catch up on things like reading that you've, you know, fallen behind on, that sort of thing. And of course, as long as, fingers crossed, the power grid and the internet stay on working pretty well, podcasting will continue to be a big deal, and 
Also, streaming video. I'm sure all of us are probably watching more Netflix, etc. than we normally do. And so I had this idea that I should do a series of episodes talking about some of the best documentary films that I can recommend, because I'm a huge documentary film watcher. The best documentary films that I can recommend that are available somewhere on streaming. So that if you're looking for something different other than just, you know, TV series and movies and whatever, if you're looking for something that will be entertaining, but also thought-provoking and educational on some level, whatever, I'd give you a whole bunch of options to check out. And so I decided I'm going to do 36, which, let's say they all average about an hour and a half a piece. That's probably in the ballpark of what they all average. That means probably I'm talking 54 hours of viewing pleasure that is interesting and educational. So a lot of really good stuff that you can watch while you hunker in the bunker and tea out walkie happens outside. And really, the last maybe 12 years or so has been an absolute golden age for documentary filmmaking. And the reasons, I think, are pretty obvious. For starters, you've got high-quality video recording hardware and editing software and so on that is much more affordable and user-friendly than ever before. And at the same time, because bandwidth has gotten so cheap and so capable, streaming video services now allow you to produce sort of niche films that don't have to get a truly massive audience to be successful. And sometimes even kind of offbeat documentaries can go viral on venues like Netflix. So I'm going to break my 36 documentaries to watch during Tiatwaki into three episodes of 12 apiece. So this episode is going to cover my first 12. The next episode is going to cover the next 12. And the third episode is going to cover the third 12, although the third episode is going to be for supporters of the podcast only at the $5 level and up through Subscribestar and Patreon. So everybody will get the first 24, but the last 12 just for DHP supporters. And I've got them listed in no particular order. They're not really listed by subject matter, title, year they came out, none of that. It basically, I just made a list as they occurred in my head. A few of these are pretty old, but most of those I'm going to recommend are within the last 15 years or so. Of course, by the way, just as a side note, check out the documentary film Agents Unknown on Amazon Prime and a bunch of other places if you've not done so already. I left that one off the list here mostly just because I covered it so recently in a DHP episode. So I figure most DHP listeners are already aware of that one, and hopefully you've checked it out after that episode I did with John and Mike from the film. But if you've not already, hey, great time, throw that on your list too. Agents Unknown. Now with all of these, I'm going to mention when the movie came out, who directed it, and then I'm going to give a pretty brief and simple synopsis of what the film's about, and maybe a little bit of why I think it's interesting or what resonated with me about the film. Of course, keep in mind that there's a lot more to all these movies than what I'm mentioning here. But, you know, I'll probably say a little bit about some of the larger themes that I see in the film and or why the film resonated with me in some way, something like that. And of course, I must say, spoiler alerts, not that it matters to a lot of these, but to some of the ones that are maybe sort of like true crime genre type ones, I'm not going to give a super detailed synopsis of them, but what exactly constitutes a quote-unquote spoiler is in the eye of the beholder. So maybe be forewarned before you listen on. All right, so here we go. In no particular order, my first 12 
of my 36 documentary films to watch on streaming during The End of the World as We Know It. Okay, so the first film I'm going to recommend... Oh, and by the way, for each of these, I'm going to mention where I know that it's available. And in most instances, most of these films, they're either available, a few of them are available on YouTube for free, at least as of this recording. And this is all, by the way, as of this recording, all these, you know, where they're at, this can always change, right? We know this streaming services constantly change what exactly is and isn't available. So if you're listening to this way after it comes out, sorry if everything's not the same as what I'm saying, as far as where things are available. But in most instances, these are going to be available somewhere, quote-unquote, free, meaning, you know, if you're a member of that streaming service. I know it's not actually free, right, because you pay for Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, whatever it is. But if I don't tell you, oh, it costs two bucks to rent or whatever, then I mean that it's included with whatever service I say it's on. And there's a handful that I couldn't find included, at least in any of the streaming services that I have. And those usually you can rent them from a place like Amazon Prime for, you know, three bucks or whatever. But I'll mention that when I get to those as well. Oh, and by the way, there will be Amazon links in the show notes to the ones that are available through Amazon and to the ones that are available free on YouTube. I'll just link to where they are on YouTube as well. So the first film I want to recommend is The Search for General So, which is currently available to watch on YouTube. This film came out in 2014 and was directed by Ian Chaney. The film starts out almost as kind of like an historical mystery sort of a thing, trying to look into the real history of General So, and whether or not there's really any connection between the historical figure of General So and the iconic chicken dish so popular in Chinese-American restaurants. From there, the film turns to the history of the Chinese in America, because of course... The dish we know as General So's chicken didn't really originate in Chinese cuisine in China, but was an innovation of the Chinese in America, developed to appeal to, you know, white Anglo-American tastes. This film I found fascinating. It's a bunch of interesting things at once. It's a story about culinary history. It's a story about an immigrant group that had a very hard time and faced massive discrimination but still figured out how to be successful, despite all the obstacles they faced. In particular, because of laws like the Chinese Exclusion Act and just sort of everyday informal discrimination and prejudice, the Chinese in America often had to, of necessity, become small business entrepreneurs because they couldn't get hired in many jobs. So they became small business owners, and one of the things that many of them went into was the restaurant business, where they developed a distinctive Chinese-American style of food that modified traditional Chinese dishes in order to make them more appealing to white American customers. So this movie is a story somewhat about adapting and overcoming, you know, turning lemons into lemonade, themes that we could all benefit from right now. And in some ways, I think you could also argue that the film is a massive blow against the simplistic idea of quote-unquote cultural appropriation. And instead, it shows how sometimes some of the most wonderful musical, cultural, artistic, aesthetic, literary, and yes, culinary innovations come from 
cultural mixing and matching and interaction. Another great example of this, by the way, is all of the food, music, and so forth of the American South that comes primarily from an interaction between Celtic British Isles culture and African culture over the course of many centuries. And of course, regarding food specifically, you could make similar arguments with other forms of kind of hyphenated American cuisine, right? Like Italian American or Mexican American, you know, these forms of cuisine that take original elements from their mother country and then adapt them to a new setting and a new palette. So anyway, it's a very interesting movie. And I really like how they took this one question of, you know, where did this famous Chinese dish that so many people enjoy in America, named for this Chinese general from, you know, centuries ago, what's really the story there? And the story is more interesting and in some ways inspiring than you might expect. All right, the next documentary I want to mention is Beer Wars. Beer Wars is currently available, as of this recording, free, but with ads, through Amazon Prime. Beer Wars came out in 2009 and was directed by Anat Baron. Beer Wars looks into the workings of the American beer industry. And it focuses on the contrast and conflict between the large corporate brewers, like Anheuser-Busch and Miller and Coors, the big three, and smaller independent ones, like Dogfish Head and Stone Brewing Company and those sorts of brewers. This movie, whether deliberately and consciously or not on the part of its makers, makes political and economic arguments that sort of combine the myth of the robber barons by Burton Folsom and The Triumph of Conservatism by Gabriel Kolko. In regard to Folsom, we get an illustration of the difference between the larger brewers, who depend at least to a large part on political entrepreneurship in order to keep their dominance of the industry, and the smaller brewers, who are usually much closer to being genuine market entrepreneurs, who rely primarily just on making a better product that customers will prefer. And this film has parallels to Kolko's book because it illustrates a specific modern-day case study of an industry in which regulatory capture is obviously in place. The parts of the government and its rules and regulations that are supposed to regulate this industry ostensibly on behalf of, I don't know, the consumer or the general public or whatever other myth you want to drop in there. These things are actually just being used, as they pretty much always are, as tools by the largest firms in the industry to help themselves and to make the industry less competitive. Basically, this film shows how the big corporate companies in the industry use the state and its laws and regulations to rig the game artificially in their favor so that they get additional privileges over smaller brewers beyond just the inherent advantages they might get from things like economies of scale and bigger ad budgets and things like that that are derived just from their size, right? That those advantages are not enough, they still face the possibility that consumers might actually prefer the smaller brewers for various reasons. And so they've got to use this regulatory capture of the government regulations to throw additional artificial hurdles at the smaller firms. So definitely a film that, while in general just interesting if you're interested in how the beer industry really works, also, whether intentionally or not, makes some very, very free market libertarian sorts of points. 
The third documentary I want to talk about is Who Took Johnny, which came out in 2016 and was directed by David Bellinson, Sookie Hawley, and Michael Galinsky. And looking around at all the different places I looked at for these documentaries on this list, the only place I saw it currently, I think it used to be on Netflix, but it doesn't look like it is right now. And I saw it available to rent on Amazon Prime for $2.99, and I think it's definitely worth the $2.99 to watch it. This documentary is really a mixture of true crime and conspiracy, and so I think it would be of interest to lots of people in the DHP audience. The film looks into the disappearance of a guy named Johnny Gosh, who was an Iowa boy who disappeared while out on his paper route back in 1982, at which time I think he was 12 years old. So it's a child abduction story, and it digs into something known as the Franklin Scandal, which was kind of like an earlier, smaller scale, but still pretty elite-connected Jeffrey Epstein-ish pedophile ring that centered on a Nebraska Republican Party major donor named Lawrence King. By the way, some sources, including I think the film itself, if I remember right, say that Johnny Gosh was the first missing kid to ever appear on a milk carton, while other sources I've seen say that he was just one of the first. I'm not sure which precisely is correct, and really it probably doesn't matter a whole hell of a lot to the grand scheme of things. But anyway, the film centers on Gosh's mother, Noreen, who just keeps relentlessly digging into her son's disappearance and ends up finding all sorts of shady things. She also claims that Johnny came to see her 15 years after he disappeared and told her some of his story, but said he was living on the run, so he kind of disappeared again after he talked to her. The film also deals with another young man named Paul Bonacci, who claims to have been abducted into the same pedophile ring and knew Johnny Gosh and all that kind of stuff. And again, a very troubled young man who also is kind of living on the run after he gets out of this thing and whatever. So anyway, I won't give any more details here because I've probably already spoiled enough already if you've not seen the film. But suffice it to say, if you're someone like me who's always intrigued by the darker, hidden secrets of powerful people, you'll definitely be drawn into this movie, as disturbing as it is. The next movie I want to recommend is called Miru, and it's currently available on Amazon Prime free of charge. Miru came out in 2015 and was directed by Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai Vassar Hellye, and I'm not sure, Vassar Hellyai, I guess, is how you say her last name, it's a little bit exotic, but anyway, this is a rock climbing, mountain climbing sort of film, and let me just say off the bat, I'm super acrophobic. Fear of heights is one of my three biggest phobias. And yet, despite that, or perhaps because of it, I'm very fascinated with all of the sort of extreme sports that deal with heights. Any kind of like skydiving, hang gliding, and also extreme mountain climbing, rock climbing, etc. These things fascinate me, even though I'm terrified of all of them. So this documentary, as well as the next one I'm going to mention, actually deals with pretty extreme rock climbing. So the film Miru deals with the subgenre of climbing known as big wall climbing. And if you're not familiar with what that term means, Wikipedia defines it as, quote, a type of rock climbing where a climber ascends a long multi-pitch route 
normally requiring more than a single day to complete the climb. Big wall routes require the climbing team to live on the route, often using portal edges and hauling equipment. It is practiced on tall or more vertical faces with few ledges and small cracks, end quote. And let me just say they mentioned portal edges in the Wikipedia quote. It's one of those things about this film that fascinated me. I had no idea about all this, that one of the things these guys will use, because they're basically climbing up a vertical or nearly vertical wall of rock on some mountain somewhere. And one of the things they use, because these climbs take multiple days, is they have this thing called a portal ledge, which is like basically this artificial ledge that you set up and you attach to the rock face, and then you camp on it. And then the next day, when you're ready to start climbing again, unless the weather forces you to stay there for a while, you take it apart, pack it up, and begin climbing again, and then set it up at the end of that day. And it was just like, wow, that's a thing. The idea of spending a bunch of days slowly climbing up a giant wall of granite is just fascinating to me. Anyway, the title of the movie, Miru, refers to a peak in the Himalayas that's over 6,600 meters high. And the film chronicles a three-man team of climbers. Jimmy Chin, the director, as well as a famous climber named Conrad Anker and another climber named Renan Ozturk. And they're trying to be the first to summit up the so-called shark fin of Miru, which is this crazy steep granite wall. They make one attempt in 2008 that fails, and then they try again in 2011. In between these two attempts, by the way, Ozturk has a terrible accident and is nearly paralyzed and has very little time to try and recover before they make their second attempt up Miru. The visuals of this film are, of course, amazing, as is the toughness and determination of the team of climbers. And watching this documentary, aside from just the insanity of the face of Miru that they're climbing up and watching them work their way up it, like I said, I was especially fascinated with the methods these guys use so that they can basically camp out on the side of a nearly vertical cliff face and portage all their supplies up with them as they climb. It's just crazy to see how they do this. The extreme climbing community is this whole world and subculture that was just unknown to me until I started to see documentaries like Miru. And I'm sure it's unknown or virtually unknown to most people who've not watched documentaries like this or who aren't climbers themselves, obviously. But I've been fascinated by these people ever since I became aware of them. Even though I know I'd never be able to do what they do, even now that I'm in pretty good physical shape, I'm sure if I ever tried this sort of thing, I'd get some portion of the way up the wall and then just freeze up with fear, and then they'd have to send a chopper or something to try and rescue me. You know, basically, it would be a worst version of the time when I was a kid when I somehow managed to climb into my neighbor's treehouse, and then I just could not bring myself to climb down, and my dad had to come with a ladder to help me out. And so I'd rather not repeat that sort of thing on a much grander and more dangerous and more expensive scale. But anyway, Miru is just a fascinating documentary. And my next film is also rock climbing related. And it's called Valley Uprising. Also currently available on Prime. 
It came out in 2014 and was directed by Pete Mortimer and Nick Rosen. And this is another climbing documentary that really held my attention. This one is looking not at the events surrounding one particular climb, but at the history of one particular area. So it focuses on the climbing culture of Yosemite National Park, where a lot of the major innovation in rock climbing has occurred ever since the mid-20th century. The film chronicles multiple generations of climbers in the area, showing how the sport has changed and evolved over time, and also looking at the cultural evolution of the climbers themselves, which, as you might imagine, are an interesting, diverse subculture of people full of many quirky, unique, eccentric individuals. So this one's interesting both as a climbing history documentary and also as a look into the evolution of a distinctive subculture. Now, before I move on to the next film, I do want to throw out one more honorable mention, another great rock climbing documentary that's by the same directors as Miru, and that is Free Solo, which is currently on Disney Plus last I checked. And Free Solo is about Alex Honnold, one of the top free solo climbers, which means he climbs with like no gear, you know, no safety harness or anything like that. His climb of El Capitan, this famous crazy rock in Yosemite. And Honnold is another just very interesting, unique guy. He's a little bit famous now because of this documentary and he was on Rogan and things like that. But just as a person, he's almost like a monk of just superhuman free solo climbing. Honnold shows up in Valley Uprising, but Free Solo focuses on him and one of his most amazing accomplishments. Free Solo might easily be on my list of three dozen documentary films, too, and the only reason I left it off the official list was that I already had two climbing documentaries on this list, and I kind of felt like I needed to have a bit more diversity of subject matter. But I do want to mention Free Solo as an honorable mention. It's certainly worth watching. Okay, so the next film I want to recommend is called The Wrecking Crew. And The Wrecking Crew is currently available on Hulu. It came out in 2008 and was directed by Denny Tedesco. Now, if, like me, you're a guitar player who is steeped heavily in mid-20th century music, you might recognize that last name, Tedesco. Even though I personally wasn't alive until the 1980s, I'm heavily steeped in mid-20th century music because my boomer father also is a musician, and he turned me on to a lot of great stuff from the 50s, 60s, and early 70s from the time I was a little kid. But anyway, the director of this film is the son of a legendary hired gun studio guitarist named Tommy Tedesco, who was a very important part of the group informally known as The Wrecking Crew, who are the subject of this film. And The Wrecking Crew is a loose group of top-notch studio professional musicians who played on countless hits in pretty much every genre of popular music in mid-20th century America. Now, they weren't like an official band or formal club or anything like that, but they were just some of the top studio musicians working in L.A., particularly in the 60s and 70s. And so even though they were all kind of independent contractors, they often found themselves working with each other, working with the same musicians again and again and again in various combinations for a huge variety of gigs. 
including recording sessions for top popular music artists of all genres, as well as a lot of soundtrack work for film and television. The nickname, The Wrecking Crew, to refer to these people was something that was coined years later when most of them were kind of retired, kind of in hindsight. These people played on literally hundreds of top 40 hits in the mid-20th century for some of the biggest names in American music at the time. And they interest me because these are, you know, solid, competent, professional musicians who can play virtually anything you ask them to play. And they're all masters of whatever instrument or instruments they play. And they're also interesting to me, not just because of their technical proficiency, but because they're a particular type of musician who are sort of chameleons where they can easily adapt to whatever style and sound and so forth that they're being asked to do. You know, they can be playing on a light jazz record in the morning and then playing more of a rock and roll record in the afternoon, and then the next day they're playing some classical-sounding stuff for a soundtrack, and they can just do it all. And there are sort of two types of musicians. There are those chameleons who can just sort of play whatever. And then there are what you might call the more idiosyncratic geniuses. And the idiosyncratic geniuses have a very distinctive style that they kind of always play in to some degree. And they often become the most famous, in part because they're particularly distinctive sounding. And often they're the great innovators, right, who come out using techniques and sounds and things that no one else has done before with that instrument, And then what often happens is if they become famous and successful, over time, more people start to adopt some of their techniques and style into their own sound. And so it becomes a case where you've got the original and then you've got all kinds of people who, to one degree or another, are absorbing some of their innovations. And if that's sounding too vague and abstract, let me just illustrate with guitarists, because that's what I know the best. These distinctive, idiosyncratic people who sort of always sound like themselves In guitar, I would say people like Jimi Hendrix, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Eddie Van Halen, Brian Setzer, right? These are all master guitarists of different styles, but they're all very, very idiosyncratic. These are not your chameleons. Whereas somebody like Tommy Tedesco is much more versatile. He can sort of sound like anybody he wants to. And it's just interesting. I'm not saying one type of musician is better than the other. I think the world needs plenty of both. But what's interesting is that the chameleons almost never get the spotlight. Right? They're the hired gun who's backing up the famous artist on stage and in the studio and whatever, but rarely do they get the spotlight. And so it's kind of cool to have a documentary where they sort of get their due. The exact lineup of the Wrecking Crew is large and, of course, varied over time and from project to project, but it included guitarists like Tommy Tedesco and Glenn Campbell, bass guitarists like Carol Kay and Joe Osborne, drummers like Hal Blaine and Jim Gordon, and many, many more, including other guitarists, bassists, drummers, as well as musicians of many other types of instruments, including woodwind and brass instruments. So anyway, if, like me, you're into music and music history, you'll really dig this documentary. Not only do they talk to lots of members of the Wrecking Crew, but they talk to some of the more famous musicians that the Wrecking Crew worked for. Alright, the next film I'll recommend is called Drunk, 
Stoned. Brilliant. Dead. The Story of National Lampoon. It's available on Amazon Prime, but to rent for $2.99. It came out in 2015 and was directed by Douglas Tirola. And this film is primarily about the history of National Lampoon magazine, which existed, I believe, from 1970 until the late 90s. And the film also secondarily covers some of the things that spun off from it, such as a bunch of hit comedy films. Now, to be honest with you, before I watched this film, I really didn't know much about National Lampoon magazine. And when I heard the words National Lampoon, I would have mostly thought of a bunch of comedy movies starting with Animal House in the late 70s, but then most of the movies I would have thought of would have been movies from the 80s. And I don't believe I've ever even physically held a copy of National Lampoon magazine in my hand in my entire life. But the title of the documentary and the positive reviews of it intrigued me enough that I decided to check it out. And I'm glad I did, because it was really interesting and entertaining, and of course, there's a lot of funny stuff in it. It turns out National Lampoon magazine was really edgy, groundbreaking humor in its heyday. Like anything that's around for three decades, it had its ups and downs. It had its periods where it was, you know, better and more creative and successful and its periods where it was less so. But man, when it was in its heyday, it was really groundbreaking. Now, I happen to be a fan of edgy humor and dark humor and social satire and all these sorts of things, so I really enjoyed this documentary. They show you a lot of the funniest and craziest stuff that National Lampoon did, and they talk, of course, to a lot of the people who were involved with it, almost all of whom, as you might expect, are super interesting, crazy characters. And in a broader sense, sort of zooming the lens out, this documentary reminds you that there was a time when political correctness wasn't really a thing, other than maybe the kind of political correctness that came primarily from right-wingers and sort of Ned Flandersy morality police in the mid to late 20th century, and that things like left-wing speech policing and cancel culture and all this wasn't a thing. Now, presumably most, if not all, of the people involved with National Lampoon were probably left-wingers of some sort or another, I would guess. But of course, it was a different world back then. And back then, leftists were more likely to be cultural libertarians, the biggest free speech absolutists, who absolutely relished offending people. So I think this film, aside from just being interesting and amusing, is also a great reminder of a time when at least more of the left than today used to be cool, if that makes any sense. Or at least when more of the cultural left had a sense of humor when they weren't prone to witch-hunting people for making offensive jokes, when it was more likely that they themselves would be the witches being targeted. My next film to recommend is called Chuck Norris vs. Communism, and it's currently available on Amazon Prime at no additional charge. This movie came out in 2015 and was directed by Ilinka Kalugarinu, and... I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation of that last name. It is Romanian, and those are often very, very tricky last names, for English-speaking people at least. This film, to me, is really cool, because it covers black market entrepreneurship and then connects that to not just evading, but positively undermining, not just a state, but one of the worst, most oppressive types of states imaginable, a communist one. Now, despite what the title might suggest to you, this isn't really about Chuck Norris. 
and it's not about him or anybody physically fighting the commies. Rather, Chuck Norris is symbolic of something very near and dear to my heart. Cheesy 80s action flicks. And they could just as easily have plugged in Jean-Claude Van Damme or any of a half a dozen other stars of these sorts of films. But I guess the thing about Chuck Norris is he's so all-American. This documentary tells the story of a black market entrepreneur operating in communist Romania in the 1980s. Under the Ceausescu regime, which was one of the most oppressive of all the Warsaw Pact regimes. Our protagonist sets up an operation based on illegally importing American movies and then running off copies of them basically by just piggybacking VCRs to copy from one tape to the next. And then he badly has them dubbed into Romanian. Many of the most popular films with the many, many Romanians who ended up buying these films were cheesy American 80s action films. Now, High-minded American elitists might turn up their nose at these sorts of movies, but to people behind the Iron Curtain, these films were like a breath of fresh air. And they made America and the West and everything that went along with it seem like awesome places, full of freedom and color and all these sorts of things, in contrast to the dreary, repressive commie world that the viewers actually lived in. Well, I don't think anyone would argue that this sort of thing single-handedly led to Ceausescu's regime failing, and he and his wife being whacked by their own people. I do think that if you watch this movie, you can't say that these black market VHS tapes of cheesy action movies didn't in some way contribute to undermining the regime. This film really illustrates a neat, specific case study example of what Thaddeus Russell often talks about when he talks about sort of vulgar American pop culture actually being a much more effective and benevolent force for freedom for people living in oppressive regimes around the world than is the U.S. government, which of course often just needlessly slaughters people, either directly or indirectly, and doesn't actually lead to any advances for average people's freedoms in the nations that are targeted by the U.S. government. In other words, crass, low-culture, American B-movies and TV shows are more of an effective force for good and liberty than is Team America, the U.S. government. And that this American popular culture helps to spread freedom without all of the negative side effects of death and destruction. I've heard Thad and I think also Michael Malice talk about how even now, in a place as locked down as North Korea, Western movies and TV shows still get smuggled in these days usually on flash drives, and they are highly valuable and well-loved by the people there, and of course, hated by the regime. Anyway, Chuck Norris vs. Communism is about real-life intellectual guerrilla warfare, being waged not through high-minded intellectual tracks or something like that, but instead through fun, cheesy action movies. An intellectual guerrilla war that not only turned a profit, but helped to undermine a really repressive regime. So what's not to love? The next documentary on my list to recommend is Milius, which is currently available on Prime at no extra charge. It came out in 2013 and was directed by Joey Figuera and Zach Knutson. This film, as the title suggests, is about the life and career of John Milius, who is one of my favorite people in late 20th century Hollywood. Milius, if you don't know, is a screenwriter and director, and 
His writing credits include things like the first two Dirty Harry movies, Jeremiah Johnson, Apocalypse Now, and the film adaptation for Clear and Present Danger, among many other movies. He also, as this documentary shows, wrote, quote-unquote, actually extemporaneously verbally over the phone, that famous scene from Jaws where Quint tells the story of the USS Indianapolis being sunk and then the survivors being eaten by sharks. In addition to that, his directing credits include The Wind and the Lion, Big Wednesday, Conan the Barbarian, and Red Dawn, the original, not the crappy remake. All of which, by the way, he also wrote. So, this is just a small sampling of some of my favorites from Milius's filmography. But what makes this film so much fun and so interesting is, not only is Milius a super talented guy and a contemporary and buddy of people like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola and Brian De Palma, but he's also a totally unique individual with a nutty, larger-than-life personality that's totally weird. Not to say there's not a lot of weirdos and eccentrics in Hollywood, but he's a weirdo and eccentric of a much different sort than the usual Hollywood eccentric who often actually fits a type and is actually conforming to something. And what I mean by that is that Milius is basically some sort of right-wing libertarian gun nut who refers to himself at one point as a Zen anarchist, and so is totally out of step with many of his beliefs and attitudes and so forth from Hollywood, and yet he was so undeniably talented that his eccentricities and his non-conforming to Hollywood standards didn't prevent him from having a very successful career in Hollywood. So, there are a ton of fascinating anecdotes in this film. They not only have lots of clips speaking with Milius himself, but also plenty of clips speaking with all of the major Hollywood directors and actors who worked with him. Maybe not all, but many of them anyway. Now, unfortunately, during the production of the film, Milius actually had a stroke that really did a number on him. And as far as I know, he's still recovering from it. And as far as I know, he hasn't been able to do any significant work on any film or television stuff since the stroke. He's still alive, but as far as I know, he's basically retired. So this movie is very interesting and a lot of fun. I love true eccentrics. And what I mean by that is someone who you can just sort of tell isn't being an eccentric or a weirdo because they're trying to get attention or they're trying to artificially make themselves interesting, but they're being eccentric because it's just who they are, and they're just doing what they want to do. And I especially love true eccentrics who are also creative geniuses, and I think Milius is definitely both. He's up there in my mind with somebody like Hunter S. Thompson as far as just being this gonzo, over-the-top eccentric genius. Although Milius is at least a little bit less self-destructive than Thompson was, which might be why he's still alive. But anyway, if you're into that awesomely creative period in Hollywood, running from, say, the late 70s through the mid-80s, and especially if you're into Milius' work in particular, and you dig crazy stories and over-the-top stuff and whatever, you'll just love this film. Number 10 on my list, and again, these aren't ranked actually in any way, they're just in random order. But number 10 anyway is Kumare which is currently available on Amazon Prime to rent for $2.99. This film came out in 2012 and was directed by Vikram Gandhi. Vikram Gandhi also stars in the movie in the title role of Kumare. 
And Kumare is an invented persona, a fake Indian guru, complete with a fake Indian accent, which Gandhi himself doesn't actually have in real life. And he even invented a backstory claiming to be from a village in India that I don't think even exists. This whole thing, he put together this elaborate hoax of himself as this enlightened guru. And Gandhi started this more, I think, as an experiment to see if this could actually be done. Could a fake Indian guru successfully dupe a bunch of gullible Americans into believing in him? And it turns out the answer, perhaps not surprisingly, is yes. There are a lot of funny moments in this film but also some sad ones and a few touching ones. Along the way, Gandhi starts to really get absorbed into his role, but he also starts to feel morally conflicted about duping these people. And he's also having some ambivalence caused by the fact that many of his followers seem to be having genuinely positive experiences, despite the fact that he himself is a fraud. And so there's this sort of placebo effect taking place. This film has been compared to some of Sacha Baron Cohen's work, like Borat, where you've got a person who's playing this fake character who is interacting with unwitting people in front of a camera. But to my mind, this movie also has a lot in common with some of the work by Darren Brown, who is this very interesting magician illusionist from the UK who also likes to debunk things, likes to debunk people who claim to have real supernatural powers and that sort of thing. And so Darren Brown has done things like inventing fake faith healers to demonstrate the ability of charlatans to manipulate believers. I think Kumari is definitely worth the $2.99 to rent, in my opinion, if you can't find it somewhere else for free, of course. I'm always interested in cults and anything sort of cult-like. And it's always interesting to me to watch a social experiment being done along those sorts of lines. And at least in this case, unlike so many real-life stories of cults, it doesn't end with anyone being molested or killed or wiped out of their life savings or anything like that. By the way, if you want to see a much more disturbing real-life version of sort of an Indian guru running a culty operation, a couple other things you can check out would be the fairly recent Netflix documentary series Wild Wild Country which is about a cult known as the Rajnichi cult. And also the recent Netflix film on Bikram Chowdhury, the founder of Bikram Yoga. So those are a couple of bonus honorable mentions, if you're interested, both of which are on Netflix. But the next film on my list, number 11, is called The 7-5, and it's available currently on Netflix. The 7-5 came out in 2014 and was directed by Tiller Russell. This film tells a story of just insane amounts of police corruption and criminality in the NYPD's 75th precinct in the crack cocaine heydays of the 1980s. The focus is on one of the worst offenders, a police officer named Michael Dowd, who was an NYPD officer for about a decade. But the film also covers many of his fellow officers who were in on various sorts of things, too. Dowd starts off just with small things, like taking bribes, that sort of stuff. But then he gradually and steadily, over the course of his years on the NYPD, keeps doing worse and bigger things. And eventually he works his way up to where he's providing protection for some drug dealers while robbing rival dealers and all kinds of crazy stuff. And meanwhile, Dowd is living this crazy, luxurious lifestyle despite his modest policeman's salary. Now, spoilers, 
Dowd ended up being arrested in 1992 after his partner ratted him out to IA, Internal Affairs, and Dowd ended up doing 12 years in prison for all the stuff he did, in one of the biggest corruption scandals in NYPD history. And so they've got Dowd himself telling all these stories firsthand. Now, obviously, I'm sympathetic to what I see as sort of the implications of this movie, which would be, first, that sometimes cops themselves are some of the biggest criminals in a city. And I don't just mean in the libertarian sense of being criminals because they violate the non-aggression principle and enforce the state's rules. But aside from that, sometimes they're also major players in sort of regular black market private sector crime, too. And the second implication I see from this film is that the war on drugs, just like alcohol prohibition in the 1920s, tends to increase the prevalence and severity of police corruption and criminality. Because the prohibition creates black markets where exorbitant profits can be made by gangs and cartels, who then have all this money that they can use, among other things, to gain influence and control over law enforcement. And there are actually a number of good modern documentaries about the war on drugs that illustrate this phenomenon, too. But the 7-5 does this very effectively by focusing just on one extreme individual example of police criminality. And on top of that, it's a very entertaining film, too. And my last documentary film to recommend in this episode is Birth of the Living Dead, currently available on Prime at no charge, no additional charge. This film came out in 2012 and was directed by Rob Kunz, or Kunz, I'm not sure. This film is a documentary about the making of one of my favorite horror films of all time. And longtime DHP listeners will know that I've been a big fan of this documentary for a long time. Actually, since before I started this podcast. And I've mentioned this documentary more than once on the show, including way back in DHP episode 107 which I will link to in the show notes for this episode if you've not listened to that one. DHP episode 107 was my presentation from Porkfest in New Hampshire in 2016, called Applying Guerrilla Methods Beyond War, and I mentioned George Romero's making of Night of the Living Dead as pretty much a perfect case study of guerrilla methods and approach being used not to fight a war, but to make a film. How Romero and the rest of his cast and crew were able to make one of the most iconic horror films of all time on a budget of just a smidge over $100,000 is an incredible story, full of tons of creativity when it comes to improvising, adapting, and overcoming. And the movie shows really clearly that resourcefulness is always more important than resources, and how sometimes being resource poor leads to creativity that ends up giving you better results than if you had all the resources in the world, and thus weren't forced to be as creative. Plenty of directors, both 50 years ago and now, make films with budgets that are exponentially more than what Romero had to make Night of the Living Dead. And yet they end up with films that are mediocre at best. So, this is an inspiring story, as well as just being super interesting and entertaining to anyone who, like me, is interested in film history in general and horror films in particular. In my mind, only the making of John Carpenter's Halloween is in the same category when it comes to making one of the most iconic and successful horror films of all time, one that stands up the test of time as well, on a shoestring budget simply using sheer creativity to make it work. 
So that's it. Those are my first 12 films to recommend that you consider watching on streaming during Tiatwaki. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Hopefully there are more than a few of the films I've mentioned here that A, you haven't seen yet, and B, sound like based on my comments, might be things you'd be interested in checking out. Like I said at the start of this episode, I'm trying my best in my own life right now to make as much lemonade as I can out of all the lemons that are getting dumped on us right now. I expect that part two of this mini-series, the next 12 documentaries on my list, is going to be coming out in the next week or two, and I've got some other stuff in the works for the DHP in the near future too, including, of course, always in the background still grinding away on the next gigantic Woodrow Wilson episode. And I just want to say I'm really trying to get as much positive out of all of this craziness as I can. And I urge you to do the same, whatever that means to you in your situation. Make an effort to take advantage of this bizarre situation. The people running Leviathan states always like to turn crisis into opportunity. But I'm saying think about ways you can do that in a benevolent, positive sense in your own individual life. Because I think there are opportunities for the individual to do good for themselves and others, even in a crisis. So among other things, I would urge you to try and figure out ways to be not just not fragile, but anti-fragile. And you can look up that book if you've not read it. Nassim Taleb, Anti-Fragile. We could all use some anti-fragility right about now. And for your own mental sanity, find some fun stuff to do. Don't spend all your time watching the coronavirus news and everything. Do it only a limited amount each day. Find some fun stuff to do. Find some things to do that will improve yourself. Take advantage of some of the extra time you might have to suddenly spend time with your family. Maybe watch some of these documentaries. Now, admittedly, many of them perhaps are not family-friendly, especially if you have little kids, but some of them are. And anyway, I hope that you find these documentaries fun and interesting, and who knows, you may even learn some new things and some interesting lessons along the way. So until next time, take care, stay safe, stay sane. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth Transfigures you and me as you 
enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits 
still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.